Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our podcast series has been accredited for continuing medical education credit. The American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Information about credit claiming for this and other episodes can be found at www.education.aaai.org forward slash podcasts. Credit claiming will be available for one year from the episode's original release date. Today is a very exciting episode, and as we're going to be discussing the recently published NHLBI 2020 Asthma Guideline Update, a much-anticipated document for primary care clinicians, asthma specialists, and patients as well. And we are extremely pleased to welcome Dr. Michelle Cloutier, who served as the workgroup chair for the, for the diverse group of experts tasked with writing this iteration of the Asthma Guidelines. Dr. Cloutier has recently retired from her position as a professor of pediatrics and medicine at Connecticut Children's Medical Center and the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. Dr. Cloutier has led a long and distinguished career devoted towards caring for patients, pediatric asthma research, high-level involvement in national organizations, and with her creation of the Easy Breathing Program, which is a standardized program designed to assist primary care pediatricians in the diagnosis and management of asthma. I could spend this entire episode and more just listing all of Dr. Cloutier's accomplishments, awards, and publications, but something tells me that she'd rather just get to discussing what she's truly passionate about. And neither Dr. Cloutier nor I have any relevant conflicts to disclose. And with that long introduction, Dr. Cloutier, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, and welcome to our, our podcast. Thank you very much, Dave. I, I, I appreciate your invitation. Yeah, I think this is going to be great. And, you know, before we discuss the details of the 2020 asthma guidelines, I think that it would be useful for our listeners to learn a little bit about the background behind the NHLBI asthma guidelines. Are you able to offer us just a, a brief historical overview of, of what goes into this? Certainly. So it, it's pretty hard to believe, actually, but uh, almost 30 years ago, the first asthma guidelines were released by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Um, these guidelines were subsequently uh, updated twice. And then uh, back in 2002, there was an update to them. But this is the first update to the guidelines uh, in the past uh, 13 years. And what's amazing about, uh, about the guidelines from a historical perspective is that in 1991, we first recognized uh, in the very first guidelines that asthma was a chronic inflammatory disease and recommended uh, corticosteroid therapy for the treatment of asthma. And since then, uh, we've seen this evolution in terms of our understanding of the disease, our approach to managing asthma. And all of this effort and work has resulted in the selected topics update uh, to the guidelines in 2020. Mm. And the, this work group that you chaired for the creation of the, the newest asthma guidelines, it, I notice is very large and diverse. Uh, can you give us some insight in regards to just the process to select members and what kind of background they come from? Certainly. The important thing about the um, expert panel uh, that wrote these guidelines is that they do represent a diverse group of individuals. So there are asthma content experts, both pediatric as well as adult, uh, emergency care physicians, uh, primary care clinicians, uh, pediatricians and internists, as well as healthcare policy individuals and implementation and dissemination uh, individuals so that uh, what NHLBI did, and in particular, the 
uh, NAEPP, the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program Coordinating Committee did, was to create a group of people who could address asthma at multiple levels. In addition, I, I want to mention one other component of the guidelines, um, and that was patient engagement and involvement. And what uh, we did was we um, held a series of, of uh, focus groups, interviews, and discussions with a wide-ranging number uh, of individuals representing different uh, aspects of asthma uh, care, so individuals with asthma, caregivers, uh, et cetera, to discuss uh, various uh, components of the updates and to obtain the patient perspective uh, relative to uh, these updates. And that's especially important given the methodology that we used in uh, developing the guidelines. That's really fascinating uh, to, to include that aspect of it. And I think that lends into the next question that I have for you. And um, I'm sure a lot of listeners weren't aware of that aspect of it in the diverse group of and large group of members of the expert panel. Um, but I'm sure a lot of our listeners do have the next question of, you know, why is there such a long lag in between the updates of the NHLBI asthma guidelines? It's been 13 years since the last one was published. And I suspect that it's something to do with what you just described. But uh, T take us behind the scenes and, uh, as to why it takes so long. Some of it just has to do with uh, funding and resources, right? mm -hmm. sort of the bottom line, right? Mm -hmm. you, you need the money uh, and you need the resources uh, to do this. In addition, um, NHLBI, to their credit, and I think this really is to their um, credit, uh, wanted to... Uh, develop a, a guideline that uh, was heavily and strongly evidence-based, uh, used the best current science, would be guidelines that individuals could trust. And as such, it, um, this sort of process uh, takes a fair amount of time. It takes time to do the, to develop First of all, what, what areas are you going to look at? What are the important questions you want to ask? And to do that, NHLBI and the uh, Advisory Council uh, of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute conducted a national needs assessment. And so got input from uh, many, many different groups, uh, patients, uh, as well as nonprofit organizations interested in asthma, professional societies, specialists, primary care clinicians. And so they used that information to decide what areas uh, uh, were they going to update. Once they decided on what areas the key questions uh, uh, relative to those areas were then developed, what is it that you want to know specifically about that topic. And so all of that was done a priori, as opposed to, as opposed to sort of saying, let's look at and see what's been published the last couple of years, and let's decide to update in those specific areas. So it's just a different approach. One isn't bad, one isn't good, it's just different. But that takes time. And then you have uh, uh, the um, Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality and their evidence practice centers were contracted to conduct the systematic reviews. And the systematic reviews, uh, again, were not uh, timed for uh, a one-year look back or a two-year mm. look back, but most of them were from the inception of the database moving forward. So they were, they tried to capture all of the literature uh, related to the specific topics. Then, go ahead. Oh, no, please. Oh, <laughs> this is, this, okay. is, this then, is fascinating. Then that information um, was, uh, was used by the expert panel to um, determine sort of the, uh, the certainty of the evidence, the quality of the evidence, and to make recommendations. And the process 
that the expert panel use is a process called GRADE, mm -hmm. which stands for Grading of Recommendations, Assessment, Development, and Evaluation. And what is especially important about using GRADE is that it provides, it's very strongly evidence-based, but it comes at the recommendations from a patient perspective, which is why those patient focus groups were so very important, because it's that information that then gets incorporated into making the recommendation. And unlike, and I think this is true, I could be wrong about that, but unlike any of the other sorts of systems for evaluating evidence, both the benefits as well as the harms of an intervention, as well as patient preferences and beliefs are incorporated into the recommendation. Um, did prior um, iterations of the asthma guidelines from the NHLBI incorporate the grade um, process, or is this the first time? This is the first time uh, yeah. that we have used grade. Now that that background is really really fascinating on so many levels, but uh, that I mean just gives tremendous insight as to what a massive operation this is and why it just takes time to do this in the manner that it was done. Um, you know, and this is in comparison to the Global Initiative for Asthma, which is also known as GINA, where they tend to update their asthma guidelines annually. Is there any collaboration between GINA and the NHLBI, or do you operate in sort of you know different silos in regards to the development of guidelines? Well, I think. Um we have different perspectives and we use different methods and approaches. So Gina uh, really looks at it from a global perspective, whereas the 2020 asthma guideline update uh, uses a, um, a United States uh, perspective. So we have some differences there. Um, we also have some uh, differences in definitions and differences in methodologies. Uh, and, and each of those differences results in different strengths. Gina is able to be very agile. Uh, they look at the literature for the past year, year and a half, decide what, um, uh, what new uh, work has been published uh, in the area of asthma, and then update their, uh, their uh, document uh, with that new information. They are not a, a guideline uh, per se, and I think they actually go out of their way to say that they're not a guideline. Um, whereas this, uh, this approach was not meant to be all-encompassing, uh, which is a weakness of the NAAPP uh, asthma guidelines. Uh, it is a selected topics update, and it's based upon uh, areas where uh, it, there were felt to be significant advances that warrant uh, a very a careful and systematic review. So they have different, uh, I think, different uses, different backgrounds, different methodologies. Um, I, well, I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> no, it's it's great because it, they they are very different in many ways, and and I love how you phrased this. Of you know, it's not right or wrong; it's just a different way of approaching things. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, you gave us such great background into you know this iteration, the 2020 asthma guideline update, um, incorporating systematic reviews and uh, really taking a deep, deep dive into specific topics. And I would love to hear how the heck did you decide what areas to focus on, and <laughs> which questions to try and answer. Yeah, so all of that work, all of the work relative to the topics and the key questions was actually determined before the expert panel was uh, configured. Mm. And uh, again, uh, deciding what topics uh, to, uh, to update was based on a, on a national needs assessment. And there were, in this needs assessment, there were 18 topics that uh, came up for uh, thought relative to uh, revising. And uh, 11 of them uh, were decided not to be included uh, in the update, either because there was no new or significant information uh, available in the specific area, 
or the topic was considered important, but not enough new evidence. Um, and specifically, this addresses the issue of biologics and mm. biologic therapy. So when the needs assessment was conducted and completed and the decision was made relative to the topics chosen, the, the, there was only one asthma biologic available on the market, and that was omalizumab. And it was felt that the asthma biologics uh, were just at the time, and this is back now in 2015, were at the time not ready for updating. No one predicted uh, in that group, no one predicted that there would be such an explosion of asthma biologic therapy uh, in, in the uh, interim period. And when the expert panel met, we, dis we discussed at great length our desire, our strong desire to include asthma biologics. But to do that and to use the grade methodology would have required a new systematic review and all the sort of steps beyond that systematic review and would have delayed the release of these guidelines for probably another year. Mm -hmm. And so the decision was made to, uh, to not include the biologics. And I think, I, I, and I think again, uh, it was a reasonable decision to make uh, at the time. And, uh, uh, but clearly it's an, it's an important gap uh, in the update. So, in essence, you're you're at the mercy of the peer-reviewed, published evidence to date when you decide on what topic to to investigate. Um, so, it, yeah, I mean, it and you know, for the listeners out there who have not participated in this sort of analysis before, you know, it, it can be a never-ending process, right? Where uh, once you get started, new publications come out, new publications come out, and new questions get raised. But at some point, you just have to commit to it and uh, get the work done. Uh, do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. What what we did was the expert panel itself um, updated the uh, systematic reviews uh, through October of 2018. Mm -hmm. So this update includes uh, that literature um, through October of 2018. Okay. Well, I, you know, with that tremendous background, if it's okay with you, I'd really like to take a deep dive into each of the areas uh, to allow for you to provide some context and practical advice surrounding each one of them. Um, and I'd, I would say, let's just go and order the guidelines and start with the role of immunotherapy in the treatment of asthma. But before we even get into that, uh, help us understand how do inhalant allergens and allergies actually relate to asthma? So clearly, and, and Dave, you're the expert on this, uh, but clearly, and there are individuals who, upon exposure to uh, different uh, inhalants, develop uh, an allergic uh, response that is a response mediated by allergen-specific uh, IgE and uh, often eosinophilic uh, inflammation. And for these individuals, after sensitization, to a specific uh, arrow inhalant, uh, subsequent exposures uh, can result in symptoms of, of uh, rhinoconjunctivitis, uh, but also symptoms associated with asthma, such as coughing, wheezing, or shortness of breath. Uh, and so for some individuals, not all, but some individuals, and in fact, you might say many individuals, aeroallergens may play a role in their asthma. Mm. Um, and along those lines, uh, help us better understand the role of immunotherapy uh, and are there various types of immunotherapy that were evaluated specifically as part of the systematic review? So immunotherapy, uh, and I am clearly not an expert in immunotherapy, but immunotherapy is one of the few uh, therapeutic options that actually is capable of modulating the IgE response. And the 2020 asthma guideline update 
looked at two different forms of immunotherapy, namely subcutaneous immunotherapy in which uh, small amounts of uh, an allergen to which an individual is sensitized and symptomatic uh, upon exposure. Uh, an individual is exposed to increasing amounts of that uh, allergen uh, through allergy shots. Uh, and uh, as a result of that uh, increasing exposure, develops tolerance to the specific allergen. And the second uh, type, which also works in a similar way, is sublingual therapy. And sublingual therapy uh, is exactly as it sounds. It's either in a tablet form or in drop form uh, for uh, individuals who are sensitized to um, specific uh, allergens. I think it's fantastic that the both um, subcutaneous and sublingual immunotherapy were evaluated as part of the review. And uh, help us out. So what did what did you find? What what are the take home messages regarding immunotherapy and asthma according to the 2020 asthma guidelines? So what uh, the guidelines recommend is that in individuals who are five years and up who have mild to moderate uh, allergic asthma. Subcutaneous immunotherapy uh, can is recommended. It is a conditional recommendation. I'll explain that in a minute. In addition to, or as an adjunct to um, standard pharmacotherapy, there are some important sorts of, uh, not caveats, but some important considerations relative to subcutaneous immunotherapy. So the first is that it's really recommended in individuals who are sensitized either by um, allergy skin tests or by allergen-specific IgE to uh, a specific uh, allergen. It's recommended uh, that therapy be implemented both during the initiation phase as well as during the buildup phase and the maintenance phase, be administered when their asthma is under control. Uh, and the reason for this is just simply uh, to decrease the risks of adverse effects, most of which occur within 30 minutes after administration. It's recommended that it be administered in the clinician's office and not at home. And there is a suggestion that individuals uh, receiving this therapy should have access to subcutaneous epinephrine. Hmm. Uh, the latter is, a, is an opinion of the expert panel. Okay, so um, bottom line, <clears throat> for those folks who are deemed allergic and that their allergies are contributing to their asthma, um, immunotherapy uh, has been uh, observed to be an effective treatment option. Is that uh, an accurate summary? It, it, it is an accurate, but it's a, it is an accurate summary. But I want to make sure that people understand that it is a conditional recommendation. And what I mean by that is a conditional recommendation is one for, for, for which, at the level of a patient, a patient may say the potential benefits of immunotherapy, which are not large, by the way, their small benefits are greater than the potential harms, which while frequent in this case, are not severe, but can be life-threatening. So there, there is risk. And again, remember how I talked about grade having sort of that balance? Mm -hmm. This is part of the balance of the benefits, small benefits, some harms. And that in making the decision to recommend immunotherapy to a patient, it's part of, of what uh, the guidelines stressed as shared decision-making. It's important for patients in whom you're considering referring for immunotherapy that they understand what the benefits might be, what the risks might be, and what the patient's burden might be because it's important, right, that you come in regularly 
mm-hmm. uh, for this therapy. And that all those things, not just the science of immunotherapy, but all of those things are balanced and measured and are uh, enter into the equation for a decision of what to do. I, I think that's very important perspective, and I'm so glad that you you offered some some context and put that in a frame of reference for people to understand. Uh, and just to clarify, I'm being somewhat facetious here. Are there guideline police that will come and take you away in handcuffs if you don't do everything that's uh, you know exactly written uh, <laughs> for for the guidelines, or is there yeah. obviously room for uh, interpretation? <laughs> well, obviously, yeah. I, I you know that's a very important point. Uh, a, a very important point, and it's one that the guidelines make throughout. There are only a couple of recommendations in the entire guidelines that were considered strong recommendations. Mm-hmm. That is to say, they were based on high certainty of evidence, like a lot of data in thousands of individuals, that this is a treatment of choice. But e, so they have high certainty. Uh, it's a strong recommendation for it. Most patients are going to want it. Very few are not. And as a clinician, this is something you should be doing. Most of the recommendations are conditional. And that is to say, they are based upon really the balance between benefits, harms, burden, cost, equity, feasibility. All of these things should enter into a decision of whether to implement a specific therapy uh, in a specific individual or not. And what, and what the guidelines now give to the clinician is they, they give them all of that information to now be able to use with an individual patient. And that's the real strength of it. And so it's incredibly transparent how decisions and recommendations were made, what were sort of the balance of forces uh, that were used. And that, to me, is the real strength of using the GRADE approach and for clinicians, because now there's not this sort of veil of of secrecy or or behind the, the wall is the information. It's all there for clinicians to use with their patients. Mm. That's great. Um, and, you know, with asthma, as you know better than anybody, there are, there's it's such a heterogeneous condition and there are so many options available um, for treatment and uh, for medications and things along those lines. And I think that's a good spot to sort of transition to the next section, if we may, uh, where um, the asthma guidelines discuss the use of intermittent inhaled corticosteroids and long-acting muscarinic antagonists for treatment of asthma. Uh, before we get into what the guidelines actually recommend and, and some of the, the nuance involved with that, just give us some background as to what these medications do for people who have asthma. What effect do they have inside the airways? So inhaled corticosteroids are anti-inflammatory agents. They certainly reduce the inflammatory response. They prevent the development of uh, uh, airway inflammation and treat it, whereas the LAMAs or um, uh, long-acting muscarinic antagonists are anticholinergic drugs and, uh, again, result in uh, bronchodilation through their uh, anticholinergic effects. Mm, okay. And uh, before we talk about the specific use of these medications, can you uh, just give us a brief sort of description? I'm, I'm asking a lot here, and I realize this before it even comes out of my mouth. Um, but in regards to our understanding of asthma phenotypes and endotypes and sort of that individualized approach to, to management um, and why therapy can differ and response to therapy can differ among individuals with asthma. Oh, that, that, that's a big question. <laughs> So currently, and and I think we should think about sort of currently where we are and where I think we're going to go with this therapy. Currently where we are is we think about uh, asthma treatment in terms of asthma severity, uh, which the update does not address, uh, but uh, pulls through uh, the the definitions related to asthma severity from 2007. Uh, But we think about that therapy. Uh, in the step diagrams in which each subsequent step is asthma of a uh, greater intensity or a greater um, severity. 
so that currently our therapy is guided by uh, severity. And it's also guided by age, uh, since asthma, and, and we looked at three different age groups, namely zero to four, uh, five to 11, 12, and older uh, therapy. And so in making the recommendations, the recommendations uh, in the update are laid out by age, and they're laid out by asthma severity in uh, the step diagrams, which many of your listeners uh, hopefully are familiar with. But I think uh, what the, the eventual downside of this approach is that one size does not fill, fit all, say, six-year-olds with moderate persistent asthma. I think as we move forward into an era of personalized medicine, into um, an, an era where uh, we, we really look at asthma as one size does not fit all, so that there are different endotypes. Remember how back in 1991, we thought of, of, of asthma as being really a single disease. Well, we now recognize that it's many, many different. There are many different aspects or even uh, disease, uh, different diseases lumped under the category of asthma. And as time moves forward, I think we will get increasingly uh, more able to recognize that there are certain groups of people for whom certain therapies are more likely to be effective or beneficial than other therapies. And I'm going to give you one example, and it's something you haven't come to yet, but um, it's, for example, in, in pheno, in fractional exhaled nitric oxide, uh, a new biomarker for uh, asthma. Uh, individuals who have an exhaled breath nitric oxide level of greater than 50 parts per billion, you can predict are going to be uh, responsive to corticosteroids. So that if you've got someone in whom you're uncertain about their disease, whether they have asthma or not, and they have an elevated level uh, of uh, exhaled nitric oxide, you could predict that they are likely to respond to uh, corticosteroid therapy. And it is that sort of uh, greater granularity in choosing our therapies that I think we're going to see um, uh, over the next 10 to 15 years. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think the the age of personalized medicine um, has been upon us for a little while, and we're just but we're just now starting to get to the the really fun part of of really tinkering with use of biomarkers and things like that. So let's go back to the 2020 asthma guidelines and and what are the key messages regarding inhaled corticosteroids and long acting muscarinic antagonists? I think the this area represents the biggest change in the guidelines. In the 2007 guidelines there was some discussion about intermittent inhaled corticosteroid therapy. And the thought was this area is just sort of emerging, coming, it's, it's not there, there's not an, enough science in the area. Well, since that time, there have been uh, some very significant ad advances uh, and clinical trials uh, in examining inhaled corticosteroid therapy. So just to sort of quickly do the key highlights by age and by severity, by the way, hmm. in children zero to four years of age who have intermittent asthma. And so they wheeze three times or less only in response to respiratory tract uh, infections. The new guidelines recommend at the start of a respiratory tract infection, adding a seven to 10 day course of daily inhaled corticosteroids. Those guidelines said use short acting beta agonists as needed. New guidelines say for that specific group, zero to four, wheezing only during respiratory tract infections, begin them on a seven to, day, to 10 day course of inhaled corticosteroids every day. 
in children 5 to 11 years of age. Now looking at moderate persistent asthma and keeping with the theme of intermittent corticosteroid therapy, SMART therapy is now recommended. SMART stands for single maintenance and reliever therapy. So for those children, 5 to 11, with moderate persistent asthma, daily and as needed combination, low dose inhaled corticosteroid and formoterol, or a medium dose inhaled corticosteroid and formoterol. Now, formoterol is specifically recommended because it is a short-acting beta agonist and it can be used more than twice a day. So for, for those individuals, they might take, for example, uh, they might take a, a daily inhaled corticosteroid formoterol combination, maybe twice a day, and then for rescue therapy, they would use that same inhaler up to, and it depends upon age, maybe 12 puffs a day. And the guidelines sort of lay out sort of the details of in what age range up to what maximum number of puffs each day. And so this is a reflection of the fact that, and the re, sorry, I should say the reason, the reason for this recommendation is it actually has been shown to improve asthma outcomes and to decrease the total inhaled corticosteroid and total daily cumulative steroid exposure by these children. So remember one of our concerns always about corticosteroids has been any effects it might have on growth. Well, here is now an approach to therapy that will um, both um, decrease the total exposure and at the same time improve asthma outcomes for those children. So that's the rationale for that approach. Now, in ages 12 or older, there are recommendations across sort of mild persistent asthma, moderate persistent asthma, and moderate to severe persistent. Again, in moderate persistence, that same approach of daily and as-needed combination, low dose or medium dose, inhaled corticosteroid from Adderall, preferably in a single inhaler, uh, for both maintenance therapy, so maybe like twice a day, as well as rescue therapy as needed is recommended. But now in adolescents and adults, in mild persistent disease, um, there are two equivalent uh, therapies that can be used. One is the current one, which is the low-dose inhaled corticosteroid and as-needed short-acting beta agonist. And the other is as-needed concomitant inhaled corticosteroid and short-acting beta agonist. So in that therapy, individuals when they begin having asthma symptoms would use their inhaled corticosteroid as well as a short-acting beta agonist uh, for their treatment, mild persistent. Now, and when you move up to severe, to moderate to severe persistent asthma, you have individuals who are already on daily and as needed sort of uh, uh, inhaled corticosteroid therapy slash formoterol. And say for those individuals, the response is inadequate. Well, what the guidelines recommend in moderate to severe persistent asthma is the addition of a long-acting muscarinic antagonist. And so, um, so for those individuals, they would be on uh, both a sort of a daily, sort of medium to even a high dose inhaled corticosteroid and a LABA. And it doesn't have to be uh, uh, it doesn't have to be for Moderol. It could be any of the LABAs plus a LAMA plus, as needed, short-acting beta agonist. So, so the idea is this, all right? We, we are now moving towards more intermittent therapy, uh, using it when patients are symptomatic, sometimes using it both for maintenance as well as for reliever therapy, Sometimes just using it 
in the really mild cases, just as needed. And LAMA, or the long-acting muscarinic antagonists, really are add-on therapy, right? They're adding on when the ICS LABA, long-acting bronchodilator, when that is inadequate therapy. Mm. So it's a lot, it's a big change. Yes, it's a it's a paradigm shift uh, compared with prior recommendations. And, you know, we've all had conversations with families about, uh, you know, you need to take this medication morning and night every single day, even when you don't feel well, because that's the best way to use it. And then non-adherence is rampant. And this, as you mentioned at the start, I mean, talk about patient preference and meeting the patient where they are to help them with self-management. Um, this is empowering in many ways. But, you know, the question I have for you now is how on earth can we help both clinicians and patients, you know, understand why things have changed and what, what kind of key message can we send as we try to, you know, adapt to the, the new recommendations? Well, you, uh, again, this is where this shared decision-making uh, comes into, in, into place. And, and that is we need to understand, uh, and, and unfortunately this takes time, but we need to understand where our patients are in terms of therapy. For some of them, uh, and this is what we learned in focus groups, some patients actually prefer daily therapy. They actually prefer that. They want to know when to take it. Whereas others like and really like this idea of I just take it when I need it. Because the reality is that's what they've been doing anyway, is they use it when they need it. Mm -hmm. And we now sanction that behavior. And, and that's the good part of that. And so the guilt that they feel and, and the, sort of the denial that they may give us in terms of what treatment they're actually using, that sort of whole area, that, that burden has been lifted. But it has been replaced by a different burden. It is going to be a burden. And it's going to be a burden. And think about the child who's 5 to 11 years of age. And this is what I think about all the time. Does the child decide when to use as-needed therapy? Uh, does, um, does the parent or caregiver, how, uh, how do they make the decision? How does a school nurse make that decision when the school nurse sees the child or when they're away at grandma's house uh, for the weekend or night? These are things that we're going to have to work on. And again, NHLBI has been just aggressively working on materials for uh, clinicians to use in their office, um, sort of uh, uh, guideline helpers. And the guidelines themselves did this as well. There's a whole section on implementation guidance for every recommendation of really the who, how, what, where, and why, and what to talk to patients about, and how to come to these decisions, uh, uh, these particular decisions. So I think it, there is going to be uh, sort of a, uh, a real paradigm shift. And I think some of the low-level fruits going to be the easiest one to implement, those patients who aren't taking the daily therapy anyway and who are going to uh, be the early adopters and quickly embrace uh, as-needed therapy. And they're actually going to do quite well with that, and that's going to be fabulous. And then there are those who are going to hold on to uh, sort of regular therapy. But remember, in moderate persistent asthma, they're still on daily therapy. The difference lies in the fact that they're going to use that inhaled corticosteroid uh, as needed in combination with uh, formoterol uh, when they need it. So I, I think it's going to uh, make them less reliant upon uh, the shorter-acting bronchodilators um, and improve their outcome measures. And we know it will uh, improve asthma outcomes. Mm. Yeah, the, the, that's the crux of the matter, right? You translate evidence into practice. And that's why I'm so thankful to have you on to you know, give us such a contextual appreciation for why these changes are occurring and the recommendations are now different. So uh, hopefully um, um, people will, will start to appreciate this and, and uh, play around with it a little bit and, and see that their patients are gonna do quite well. Um, let's shift gears back to indoor allergens, um, or allergens, I should mm. say, because that's the next topic in the 2020 asthma guidelines. Um, 
And the next key area really focuses on the effectiveness of indoor allergen reduction uh, measures in the management of asthma, um, which kind of ties in with the first topic very naturally. But, you know, just real basically, what are the major indoor allergens um, that we're talking about here? We're talking about uh, dust mite. Uh, we're talking about animal dander. We're talking about uh, environmental tobacco smoke, which the update does not address. Mm. Uh, and we're talking about pests, uh, cockroaches and uh, rodents. Mm -hmm. And um, should clinicians or patients with asthma just automatically assume that they have indoor allergies and start taking allergy medicine or making changes inside their home? Or um, should they actually be evaluated uh, to see if they are sensitized and allergic uh, before making any changes? Yeah, this is uh, this is an important sort of aspect of the new guidelines. So the assessment of allergy exposure uh, was recommended in the 2007 guidelines and the assessment continues. So it is important for clinicians to assess environmental exposures uh, on behalf of their patients with asthma. They need to assess it. Routine that is, our global allergen mitigation strategies are not recommended, however, as part of routine asthma care. Rather, and this is the important part, rather, strategies are recommended for individuals who are exposed to a particular allergen and who demonstrate sensitization either by, IG, uh, either by allergen-specific IgE or allergy skin testing, or have symptoms upon exposure. So for people who don't have access to, to allergy skin testing, if, you know, every time the child goes to grandma's house, and I don't mean to, you know, <laughs> but if every time they go to grandma's house, they... Uh, and she has a cat, there's a problem. Uh, the family probably should not get a cat. Um, so, uh, so it's either evidence of sensitization or symptoms upon exposure and a history of exposure. And, and that's important, and a history of exposure. For those individuals, the evidence is pretty clear that single component mitigation strategies are not effective. Let me give you a couple of examples. Air purifiers, filtration systems. Just simply putting an air filter or filtration system in your house for the treatment of dust mite is not effective, nor are impermeable pillow and mattress covers. Single strategies, by and large, are not effective. When you are going to use, I know this is going to be a, a big thing, when they are used or when you're thinking about using them, multi-component strategies are most effective. So, for example, the HEPA system plus impermeable pillow and mattress covers plus cleaning uh, activities are conditionally recommended. So, um, so again, multi-component strategies can be used and may be effective. Having said that, though, the benefits are small. Um, a lot of it had to do with this, many of the studies were small. Uh, there was a lot. There was no placebo group, and so there was a lot of risk of bias in the studies, and the benefits uh, were not really standardized. And so it was difficult to sort of sort through them. Um, so there were a lot of problems with those particular studies. But the one exception to that is integrated pest management, which has a which has been shown to have when used as a single component strategy, even though it is multiple components, but integrated pest management. Uh, which reduces both infestation as well as uh, kills um, existing uh, critters. Integrated pest management is 
uh, again, conditionally recommended. It has a small benefit in terms of symptoms for individuals who are, again, exposed and either have symptoms or are sensitized. It does, however, have a burden uh, to families. And so it is, uh, it is a conditional recommendation uh, for its use. That's a lot to unpack. Uh, <laughs> so, uh-huh, I know it is. Yeah, um, and we, we won't yeah. spend too much time on it, but I just want to clarify for our listeners uh, and kind of put it more in context here. You know, I, I meet families every day before they uh-huh. even see me or before they even they're even evaluated to see if they have allergies. They are told to remove all their carpeting. They're told to take down their curtains. They're told to spend thousands of dollars on air purifiers for every room throughout the house. They're told to find new homes for their pets. Um, and, you know, it, that's just blanket recommendations made to these to these families. And I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like you're actually saying, based upon the evidence, that we need to not only evaluate exposure to these and then see if we can identify some causative effect of exposure and with their asthma symptoms. And then even then, we can actually recommend targeted intervention strategies. Um, am I accurately capturing that of like, you're basically saying we need to be thoughtful about what we recommend to families? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Now I'm going to throw another monkey wrench into into that, but because I, I think that is what the what the recommendations are saying. And that is in the focus groups with patients, many of them said, well, I'm going to do this anyway. Uh, because, because they're actually looking for something, what can I do to make it better? But at the same time, you know, some of these interventions are, uh, are burdensome to families. Uh, they have a cost associated for example, air purifiers I have not just an initial cost, but also an ongoing cost. And so we need to be um, thoughtful about, uh, about what interventions we recommend. And we have to be realistic about what outcome measures or benefits might accrue to the patient. And again, uh, and, and the caregiver and the family. And so this is all part of that sort of shared uh, decision making mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of thoughtful approach. And I, you know, and I know uh, that many individuals uh, uh, distribute uh, uh, mite impermeable pillow and mattress covers. And um, uh, individuals might place them on, on the bed. Uh, but w- one of the things that the, uh, one of the expert panel members actually said, but you know, um, dust and dust might collect on the surface of those allergen impermeable uh, pillow and mattress covers. So they've got to be cleaned. And failure to clean them, any potential benefit you might have had of using them as part of sort of a multi-component strategy will be lost unless they're maintained. So it, it all comes down to uh, this, you, must, you should be exposed to it. You should have some demonstration of, of response to it, either by testing or by symptoms. And then uh, use a multi-component strategy. Unfortunately, the way the studies were designed that looked at some of these multi-component strategies, um, they used uh, different combinations of strategies, different outcome measures. And so it wasn't possible in sort of sorting through the various studies. And there were a lot of studies um, uh, sorting them through to say, well, this is, you know, this, these two or these three are, are the most effective combinations. And that's where we need to go in terms of this research. Yeah, that's great background. Um, you remind me of the old joke of, you know, what does the family do when their allergist tells them to get rid of their dog? They find the new allergist. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, shared decision making mm-hmm. absolutely has to be at the heart of all of this mm-hmm. stuff. That's great. I'm glad this was addressed in the in the new asthma guidelines. Well, let's move on to the, the fourth area, uh, which discusses the effectiveness 
and safety of bronchial thermoplasty in the management of asthma. And I have no doubt that some of our listeners are asking themselves, what the heck is bronchial thermoplasty? So can you can you offer us some background? Sure. So we know that there is um, uh, hypertrophy of muscle around the airways in individuals who have asthma. And what bronchial thermoplasty does is it uh, gently and carefully sort of burns away some of that muscle. Uh, so it's, uh, it's done via bronchoscopy, so uh, it's minimally invasive. Uh, it's done over three, um, three sort of sessions. And so they use heat to sort of melt away, and maybe melt away is a better way uh, to describe it, uh, melt away some of that smooth muscle. And as a result of that, uh, airway resistance is markedly decreased, airway caliber uh, is uh, increased. And there uh, have now been uh, three sort of major studies of bronchial thermoplasty. All have follow-up of a year, and some have even follow-up over three to five years. And uh, for some individuals with asthma that's just, they're not able to control, um, uh, it has a, a small benefit. But the risks, and again, this is the value of grade, but the risks are moderate. And you can imagine there are both short-term uh, complications, so uh, bleeding, atelectasis, uh, being sort of uh, asthma exacerbations uh, are, are part of that. Uh, and there may be some long-term uh, complications of it. And so the guideline uh, recommended that this should not be uh, a standard therapy. So the recommendation is the conditional recommendation against that particular um, therapist. Um, having said that, however, again, here comes that sort of patient um, contribution, uh, I'll call it. And that is for uh, individuals for whom therapy just isn't working or they have a lot of side effects who um, say, you know, I'll take, I, I'll, it's okay to have these immediate harms, like worsening symptoms, uh, and also to have some of the unknown sort of long-term side effects. But those individuals, uh, the potential benefits, they, those individuals might consider bronchial thermoplasty. Again, a shared decision between the clinician and the patient in terms of what's going on with them and where their preferences and beliefs lie. But when used, because this is such a new therapy and there are so many questions about this therapy, the guideline panel wanted to ensure that individuals receiving this therapy should be enrolled in patient registries or as part of clinical trials so that we can get the information that we need to determine sort of the balance between benefits and risks. And with this procedure, um, I mean, you gave us a great overview and background regarding it. Is that something that, you know, people get admitted to the hospital overnight uh, in order to have it done? Is it readily available at, you know, any doctor's office? Uh, what, you know, where is this being done right now? No, this is being done in large uh, centers with uh, uh, interventional pulmonologists. Mm -hmm. uh, so you need special training to administer this. This is a special piece of equipment. Uh, that is used in, in order to do this. Uh, you can imagine there is a tremendous art uh, to this mm -hmm. procedure as well as the science. Oh, absolutely. Well, uh, with that, let's move on to the last area. And this discusses uh, something you mentioned actually previously, uh, which is the clinical utility of fractional exhaled nitric oxide and asthma management. Uh, tell us again, what is uh, fractional exhaled nitric oxide and what does it measure? So it measures exactly what it says. Mm -hmm. uh, if you breathe through a tube and you exhale, there is an amount of nitric oxide in the exhalant, which can be measured. And in individuals who have airway inflammation in particular, these levels are elevated. And inhaled corticosteroids reduce these levels in, uh, in the exhaled uh, breath. And so uh, the question, 
uh, is, uh, is it useful uh, in various aspects of, of asthma management? And so the guidelines looked at it in terms of diagnosis and said, yes, it's a conditional recommendation. It can be used in asthma diagnosis, but in individuals in whom the diagnosis is uncertain. So it's not a first line. It's not something you would just measure and say, aha, you have asthma, i.e. it's not diagnostic of asthma. Rather, it's an adjunct test to be used with history, physical exam, spirometry testing with bronchodilator responsiveness. And if in, when you've done it in that way, if it's still uncertain as to the diagnosis, then exhaled uh, FENL may be useful uh, in helping you to make that diagnosis. It's also, in the same way, it can be helpful in uh, monitoring therapy and response to therapy over the long term, over the long haul, particularly when, again, history, physical exam, spirometry testing, um, it's not clear uh, if the asthma is under control, is being well managed, or not well managed. So it's an adjunct test, not the, uh, the hope for a single stand on its own test. Mm. It's also not recommended to assess asthma control. So there are other measures that are better at assessing asthma control, nor does it predict future exacerbations. So uh, the evidence just does not support that and nor does it affect exacerbation severity. So it's an adjunct test when the asthma diagnosis is uncertain and as a test that you use frequently as part of a whole asthma management system of monitoring disease when sort of um, uh, it, uh, things are not uh, clear. Mm. Uh, can somebody have asthma? and even severe asthma, and yet still have a normal um, level of exhaled nitric oxide? Yeah, this is one of the big problems with sort of limitations of veno testing, and that is uh, there are so many uh, things which can affect uh, the phenol levels, things like comorbid conditions. So you could uh, not have asthma, but have uh, uh, allergic rhinitis, or conjunctivitis, and you might have an elevated level of uh, pheno or allergic, to, so you could have allergies and not asthma and have elevated pheno. You could have uh, obesity uh, is another um, marker. Uh, you could have asthma beyond inhaled corticosteroids and have a normal or low level of uh, pheno. So the interpretation of the result uh, has to be done uh, carefully and in the context of a variety of comorbid conditions. And um, you know, you just talked about bronchial thermoplasty really only being done with highly specialized training and in academic centers and things like that. What is that the same for um, pheno? Is that something that's readily available, or do you really have to go um, only to the, the specialized of specialists? Well, uh, it depends. Hmm. And what it depends upon is the testing itself is quite easy. Um, and it's children, uh, five and older, uh, can actually do this test. So it's a pretty easy test to perform. As I mentioned, the interpretation is a little, is difficult. And so you have to carefully interpret it. It can be done in primary care offices but in most primary care offices, it's not going to be cost effective because you do have to replace the cartridges and the cartridges have a cost associated with them. So in addition to the initial outlay of, of the equipment. And so I think this is where establishing partnerships and relationships between primary care clinicians and uh, specialists is really especially important. Uh, and this is where it can be so uh, very useful in uh, improving our management of asthma and in sort of using this particular uh, test in uh, disease management. Okay. But again, the cost may limit its availability in primary care uh, settings. Sure. 
Okay. Well, Dr. Cloutier, this has been a, a thorough, very thorough and very informative discussion. And I'm so thankful that you came on to discuss, you know, just really the tip of the iceberg in regards to the new asthma guidelines. Um, but if I may, I would love for you to offer some words of wisdom uh, and advice on how clinicians should utilize these new guidelines in their practice. Um, you know, wh what can we do with this, this new information? To me, the most important uh, sort of aspect of management is uh, the delivery of consistent messages uh, to patients. And so as the new guidelines are released, I would like to urge uh, clinicians, uh, particularly primary care clinicians, but also my uh, specialty colleagues, to work to develop a consensus approach to asthma management within their practice. Uh, in this way, they can look at some of the new materials that are coming out, sort of the decision aids, and they can create uh, sort of this consistent messaging and similar, not identical, but similar approach to managing asthma in their patients. And using the same terminology and words uh, with patients. I think this will go such a long way in helping patients uh, to better manage and take control of their asthma. Mm, that's great. And I, I like that you reinforced again, uh, we're not in this all alone. We don't have to sit down and read it cover to cover and memorize it and then try to spit out a bunch of words that don't make any sense to us or our patients. Use the decision tools. Use the the materials that will be you know pushed out by NHLBI and made available to all of us. And um, I think it's going to take you know some time to kind of get comfortable with it. But I, I agree 100%. We need to be consistent with the, the words that we use and the messaging that we send. Now, you know, along those lines, I, I, it was really just an absolute pleasure to have you as a guest today, and I can't thank you enough for your time. You've been more than generous with your time today, and I could talk to you with, you know, for another hour about this, but I will direct all of our listeners to the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology website where you can have free open access to the complete asthma guidelines, which you can find at www.jaciconline.org. Uh, and with that, Dr. Cloutier, I, I'm happy to offer you the opportunity to share any last words. Thank you very much, Dave, for giving me this opportunity. Uh, I really appreciate it. Oh, well, it's our pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org to obtain CME credit, as well as show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.